Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. In our last two chapters tonight, we're looking at uh, sort of, uh, well, the conclusion, but what I might call an epilogue, an addendum to the body of Leviticus. Uh, if you look at the outline that I used, uh, this chiastic sort of structure, sacrifice, priesthood, clean and unclean, day of atonement, holy and unholy, priesthood, sacrifices, this comes at the very end, these last two chapters, as a conclusion, uh, closing thoughts and statements from the Lord to the people that kind of conclude, concludes the book. And what we have here is something that's pretty typical for ancient Near Eastern covenants, ancient Near Eastern agreements between parties. And that is a series of promises and warnings. Or we could be more specific and say, these covenants concluded with blessings and curses. You can go through any number of ancient Near Eastern documents and find agreements between two parties, or one nation and another nation, or one king and another king, and you can see this same structure being used. There are things that uh, will benefit both parties if both uphold their side of the covenant or the agreement. And there are curses. In other words, you know, may this happen to you if we agree and we abide by the agreement we've made. And then you have the curses. But if we disagree and if you uh, break the covenant you have with me, may this happen to you. And so they have blessings and curses. Leviticus closes with something similar. I'm not going to say blessings and curses, though that, that might be there a little bit. Uh, it closes with something similar. But rather than, um, rather than a warning necessarily for the people, this at the end of Leviticus comes as an invitation to greater devotion. In other words, this isn't one king trying to intimidate another weaker party by saying, you better uphold your end of the agreement or else... You know, you'll die, and we'll attack you, we'll slaughter you, whatever the, the, whatever the curse might have been in those ancient uh, covenants between two parties or nations. No, this comes from the Lord to his people as not a threat, but as an invitation for them to continue in obedience, to continue in faithfulness, to continue trusting him and following him as they are about to leave Sinai and continue on their way to the promised land. We see in these warnings and these, uh, these blessings, these curses, we see God's desire to draw his people. We'll come back to this at the end. That's been God's desire all along from the very beginning of the book. We could say even from creation, this has been God's desire. Not to threaten his people into submission, but to invite them into his presence so as he can enjoy their presence and they can enjoy his presence. We also see God's great patience in doing so. God wants to invite his people. He wants to draw them closer. And we see his great patience in doing so. We'll unfold that a little later in the lesson. 
So I've chosen to break this into two sections. Uh, rather than blessings and curses or even blessings and discipline, I've chosen to see it as an invitation and a response. God's invitation to his people and what their response ought to be. And not saying it's not the other things. I just like that, that layout a little better. So let's look first at the invitation. We see a promise encapsulated in the promise of God's presence. A promise of God's presence. Look at uh, chapter 26 and uh, the last three verses of the middle section there, verses 11, 12, and 13, and uh, listen to how God speaks to his people here. This promise he makes. I will make my dwelling among you And my soul shall not abhor you. Two things you want to circle. One is the word dwelling. The word dwelling, which you will see if you have a footnote in the ESV Bible or whatever Bible you're using, will let you know that's the word tabernacle. I will make my dwelling, my tabernacle among you. And my soul shall not, you want to circle this word, abhor you. We'll come back to that later. And I will walk among you. Walk. Look at that word, walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. We see the promise of God's presence. What's the central promise here God's making? I will be your God, you will be my people. You will dwell with me, I will dwell with you. Where else do we see this kind of language in Scripture? I drew your attention to the word walk. I think that's an interesting word that Moses chose to use there. And if you want another Scripture reference that I think makes this very interesting, Genesis 3, verses 8 through 9. Can anybody think of where walk would have been used in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, and this is, this is after the fall. What now? Well, the word is used after the fall. What it, what, go ahead. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah and, uh, God comes down to walk, and it seems as if this is something that was normal. God came down, it said, in the cool of the day, walking in the garden, looking for Adam after they had sinned. You know? and, and though that's after the fall, it seems like that had been something that was a pattern, that God had communed. He walked with Adam and Eve. He was among them. They were his people. He was their God. Another time this pops up is at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, specifically verses 3 and 4, when we see this vision of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, what does God say? It is done, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And this, I mean, you could you just do a Bible search. Uh, in your, if you had the study guide, the, the little book, the study guide, it, th- there's tons of references that say that exact same thing. Throughout the prophets, you have that promise from God. If you return to me, if you'll repent and turn to me, what does he say through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah? I will be your God, you'll be my people. What was the warning from Hosea? I know you remember all of the minor prophet sermons. Uh, the flash... The, the flash flood through the minor prophets in the fall. But what was the thing that happened with Hosea? With Gomer, you know, his prostitute wife he had three children with. One of them was not my people. And God said what? This is to tell Israel that 
they are not my people and I'm not their God. This harsh judgment that God was bringing upon his people was a breaking of this. I will not be your God, you'll not be my people. But that promise runs throughout all of Scripture, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Why is this such a frequent promise in Scripture? Well, let's start from the beginning in Genesis. As I said, it seemed to be something that was a regular pattern already. It's something that God had made us for. God made us to not just enjoy each other's company and fellowship. It's not good that man should be alone. But he made us to enjoy his fellowship and communion with him, to worship him. As that, that, that picture of him walking with man, Adam and Eve, in the garden that he made for them. There was this picture of communion and fellowship and love. And so if that's the way God created us in the garden, and he said, it is good, this is the way I want it, and that is what is broken by sin, then what we see at the end of the book in Revelation is a restoration of what he intended it to be in the first place. Why we call it a new creation. There's a new heaven and a new earth, a new humanity through our new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this beautiful picture of us fellowshipping and communing and walking with God is restored in the new Jerusalem for eternity future. So when we come to what typically would be the curse section of the agreement, Remember I said every ancient Near Eastern creed had promises and curses. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be cursed in this way. But when we turn in the book of Leviticus to what should be the curses, if it was following any other ancient Near Eastern document pattern, instead we see discipline. Not cursing, but discipline. Let's just do a little cursory reading uh, of these verses. Uh, chapter 26, starting in verse 18. Listen to how God warns his people. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 23, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Now, fathers in the room, you know this. I tell Anna I'm going to punish you, or Lily. Why did Anna come up first with punishment? I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to punish, I'm going to spank you, right? And then... Anna has this way of telling on herself. I don't know. Something's wrong with her, I think. And we'll promise her a spanking earlier in the day, or her mom will, and I'll get home. And let's say, oftentimes, Jessica might forget that she said, when your dad gets home, you're getting spanking. And uh, who will bring it back up at the dinner table except Anna? And I tried to tell her one day when mom was away from the table, mommy said, I I need a spanking. And I was like, just... Just be quiet. Just don't, <laughs> just don't say anything. But, but you know, and, and not to say that God doesn't, to, does not discipline the way he should because we oftentimes relent as parents because we love our children and we don't want to see them hurt and cry and stuff with discipline. God isn't like that. But it isn't interesting that he says, you know, if you won't listen to me, I'll discipline you. And if you still don't listen to me, I'm going I'm to strike you. 
And if you still don't listen to me, I'm going to strike you some more. And, and then it keeps on going in verse 20, uh, 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you. God, you see the patience there we talked about earlier? You don't do this. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to discipline you. As many times as it takes, God says, I'm going to discipline you. Verses 40 through 45 kind of cap this off, and I want you to listen to some of this language. I'll tell you some words to, to pay attention to. Starting in verse 40, verse, uh, chapter 26. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies... If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, watch this, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them, and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity, because they have spurned my rules, and their souls abhorred, there's that word again, my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will make for their sake, I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So interesting, we see God's discipline of his children, Israel. What does this tell us about Israel's relationship with God? I think that I just used an extended metaphor to, to display this. It's that of a father and his children. This is not some political, merely political agreement between two wicked kings uh, about putting a stop to their war. And let's write up a treaty, let's write up a covenant, and if you uphold your side and I uphold my side, we're good. But if one of us breaks our side, then, you know, the curses will fall down. No, what we see here is more of a language of a father to his children, warning them, promising them that if they break the covenant, if they disobey, if they walk contrary to him, there will be consequences. But in all of it, God continues to say, I will not abandon you. It's discipline. It's not abandonment. It's discipline. It's not cursing. How radically different this was than any other ancient Near Eastern creed or covenant or agreement it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. And if you think about two kings that should have this kind of agreement, this is from God uh, making a covenant with his people, a blessing and discipline. He will not abandon them, but he will discipline them. He will not forsake them. Why do you think there are so many more verses about discipline? I think it was like, I can't remember what the study guide said. There was like 32 warnings <laughs> 32 warnings of discipline, and maybe 14 promises of blessing. Uh, I think there's a lot there, actually. Uh, one, it seems to indicate that Israel is going to screw up a lot more than they're going to deserve God's blessing. 
It seems to indicate that. I right? got 32 warnings of discipline versus 14 promises of blessing. But on the other hand, it shows, and we, we just saw that, it shows God's continued faithful patience with his people. That even though he has to say it 32 times, you parents know this, 32 times I've got to say this to you, if you disobey me, there will be consequences. And if you still disobey me, there will be consequences. And you just keep on going. Because you love your child and you want them to behave, you don't want to all the time kill them, but you want to bring them back into relationship with you, reconcile and have them behave the way they ought to behave, if that were possible with with children and we kind of see the same thing with with israel here god is a father really bending over backwards as the creator of the universe to accommodate what he knows is the weakness of these poor sinners like israel and like us so that's the invitation god puts it out there this is what you're supposed to do I promise my presence with you, you'll be my God, I'll be your people, I will walk with you. And then he also promises these seasons of discipline if they disobey. So what's the invitation? Obey, be faithful, follow me, walk according to the law that I've shown you. Now we see the response. We see these responses to God's blessing and God's discipline. Number one we see what's called vows in chapter 27. In verses 1 through 13, we see these vows. Now, we're not going to read it all, but if you, <laughs> if you just kind of look through here, you see that a, a person may be given to the Lord's service. We'll talk about this in a minute. A person may be given to the Lord's service as a vow. Um, so number verse 3, the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. And so you see people that could be vowed by family members or later in verses 9 through 13, animals that could be vowed to the Lord's service. Uh, and the person would actually be compensated for what that person is worth. Not in terms of a human life, we'll get there in a minute, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but in terms of what they would be worth for a year's wages. That was the compensation that would have been given for the people that were given in service to the Lord. These people could also be bought back. They could be bought back if they changed their mind or if they felt like they fulfilled their service. They could be bought back by the person who sold them to the tabernacle or to the service of the Lord uh, so as to... Uh, pay a little extra money and have the person back. Think about Hannah uh, kind of entered into a vow with Samuel uh, when she was praying for a child, and she said, Lord, if you give me a child, I will devote him. Actually, that's a later, in later subject we'll look at. I'll devote him to your service. That's, what, that's in essence what that was. Number two, we have dedications. Um, in verses 14 through 27, really almost the, the whole chunk of this is, is dedications. Um, notice if you just look through this, uh, this is about property. Uh, verse 14, a man can dedicate his house to the Lord. Um, he, he can redeem his house back, adding 20% to the price, but he can buy it back uh, if, if he changes his mind or he comes into hard times. A man dedicates to the Lord, verse 16, a portion of his land. Uh, of course, and if, he, if he desires the field later, he shall buy it back for, again for, for 20% more, five times what it was worth. 
um, he dedicates a field. Uh, firstborn animals, verse 26 and verse 27, though, it noticed that a firstborn animal or man already belongs to the Lord. So it cannot be dedicated to the Lord. It already belongs to him. It should be given to him anyway. Uh, and if an unclean animal's there, he shall buy it back at evaluation. He can dedicate an unclean animal to the Lord's service, whether that's just to work the fields or, or to provide some domestic use for the priest, not to be sacrificed by the priest because they're unclean, but to be used by the priest for other things. Number three, there are devoted things. Devoted things. Verses 28 through 29, I will read these to you. No devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Okay, so these are things given to the Lord that may not be bought back. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. Verse 29, no one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Now, verse 29 more or less has to deal with uh, the war with the Canaanites that they're certainly going to enter into when they come into the land. There's going to be wars. There's going to be battles. And if the Lord says, devote this to destruction, devote this kingdom, devote this people to destruction, that's what they're supposed to do. They give it to the Lord in that way by putting it to death, whether it's an animal or an enemy. So there's a, a devotion that's not death, that this is given to the Lord, and I, whether it's a sin that I've committed or something I'm trying to make right between me and God uh, in the tabernacle system, I give my firstborn child or I give my firstborn daughter or I give this animal or this thing, and this is wholly devoted to the Lord. The relationship isn't severed, but like with Samuel, he's wholly devoted to the service of the temple, and he could not be bought back for the 20% more that you could if you had merely dedicated it or given a vow for it. Then in verses 30 through 34, we have the institution of the tithe. Every tithe, tenth of the land, whether of the seed of the land, verse 30, or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. All of you can get back what you give, but you've got to pay a little more for it. You know, so at the end of the day, if, if something happens and you need something back, whether it's your field or your house or, or family, a family member or whatever you've devoted to the Lord, or not devoted, dedicated or vowed or tithed to the Lord, if you need that back, at least a fifth of what the priest could have made from it is given to the priest. So it's, it's not all loss for, for the tabernacle or the priest if something is, is redeemed. Uh, and every tithe of the herds, verse 32, and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. Uh, that is, if he chooses to give a substitute, tries to dupe the priest into taking a substitute for something that's good or bad, then... Uh, the priest gets to keep both, <laughs> and it cannot be redeemed. So th these are four, notice how practical they are. They're practical ways that Israel, now remember, Israel living in what we would technically call a theocracy. There's no king now, there's elders later, but the central governing presence in the camp of Israel is the tabernacle. And at least at this point, the central governing body are the priests, 
And so this is not only a religious framework, it's a political and economic framework. We saw that with the Sabbaths and the year of Jubilee and all that stuff. This, this is really the entire life of Israel right here in the tabernacle. Um, so we have to keep that in mind when we see these ways in which God calls the people to respond. How can I, on an everyday basis, show my devotion and my worship and my service to the Lord? Well, first of all, there's the feasts, there's the regular sacrifices that you're to participate in. But if you want to take it one step further in devotion and service and faithfulness to God, enter into a vow. Enter into this series of devotion or dedication. And then the tithe is there as kind of this ongoing gift to the Lord. So let's talk about this just a little bit, um, just to unpack it briefly. The values given there in the vows and uh, the devotions and dedications are not the value of a human life. There's no suggesting that a male between 20 and 60 years old should only cost 52 shekels. Now, that is not what's being said there. These are earning potentials. How much can this person, on an average, if they were in a regular work day, workforce situation, how much can they make, whether it's livestock or crops? What are they worth in terms of their work? Earning potentials, not the cost of a human life. There's no cost, obviously, no price put on that. Labor was then rendered, not in some slavery situation, but a person was devoted to service in the sanctuary, i.e., remember, Samuel, devoted to the service of the Lord. Now, none but the Levites could go into the sanctuary or even into the tent, at, you know, the, the court, but they could serve the priest in other way, ways, whether it's repairing parts of the tabernacle, whether it's raising animals that were to be used in the ceremonies of the tabernacle, what, making things for the tabernacle, the, the repairing veils or uh, making the, the, the various furnitures or the coverings for the furnitures. There's all kinds of stuff that people could do in service to the priest that was not doing the service or the work of the priest. Okay, so this is not saying these people became priests, but they became devoted to the work of the priest and helped them out in the ways that they could. Vows and dedications could be restored, namely during the Sabbath year. Remember every six years, every seven years, there was the Sabbath year. And then the seventh Sabbath was the year of Jubilee, which was like super Sabbath year. <laughs> but every Sabbath year, as the land rested, so too could these people be released. If they, were, if they could be redeemed, uh, the others that couldn't be redeemed had to stay in their service. The, the ones dedicated, or devoted, I'm sorry. But the dedications, the tithes, the vows, uh, if it was field, people, whatever it was, could be restored during a Sabbath year. But devoted things were surrendered permanently and then we see the tithe come in as a regular expression of faithfulness to God When we look at these things, it's interesting that sometimes w when we talk about worshiping God with our lives or um, when we talk about how to respond to God in worship and devotion, I think sometimes we, we tend to think that that has to be some sort of special thing. Like, well, if I'm going to serve God, uh, it's going to look like this. 
It's going to be this special thing that happens. Of course, not daily or weekly or even yearly. It's a special thing. That, that was service to God. What these things reveal to us, these four responses to the Lord, is not only is service and worship to God something sometimes special and separated. We, we, we worship on Sunday mornings. We certainly think that's a special day of worship, that it is necessary in addition to your daily lives of individual worship. But there's a special time there. Uh, maybe we look at special services during the year, Christmas and Easter and other times when man, I, really, I really need to be in church on that day. Or maybe it's something you do for the Lord. Um, uh, if you sing or you play the, an instrument or you speak or you teach, uh, maybe not all the time, but somewhat regularly. You know, it's not every week, but there's this special time when it happens. What these four responses reveal to us is that worship and devotion to the Lord can be those really serious times when we make a vow to the Lord, a dedication to the Lord, or devotion to the Lord. But the tithe reveals that worship and devotion to the Lord can be regular, ongoing faithfulness. Regular, ongoing faithfulness. You don't have to wait for something special, some special occasion, some special time for you to use a talent or a gift in order for you to worship the Lord. Regular, ongoing faithfulness to God is also service to the Lord. What does that look like? Living your daily lives in worship and service to the Lord. Loving God, loving other people. Devoting, yeah, your service to the church in a regular way, an ongoing way. Maybe it's not just waiting for that opportunity to teach or to preach or to play an instrument or to sing. Maybe it's just picking up a piece of trash in the hallway or helping someone in a Sunday school class or inviting someone to church or serving an elderly person in the congregation. These regular, ongoing ways are just as much worship and just as much response to, to the Lord as are what we would call those big things that we do for God. That's what these things reveal to us. As we come to the end of the book in chapter 27, verse 34, I want you to see a difference uh, something that takes place between the end of Leviticus and the beginning of Numbers. Verse 34 of chapter 27, These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. If you look back at chapter 26 in verse 46, These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Chapter 25, verse 1, as we began sort of this last section, what does it say? The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. So you already know this. Where is the location for the entire book of Leviticus? Mount, Mount Sinai, right? God speaking to Moses, the people are at the bottom waiting to hear what God has to say. God instituting the tabernacle and all these things with Moses on the mountain. His glory is there, the cloud, the thunders, all the, all the frightening sounds and sights, and the people are there at the base. What about Numbers 1.1? The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, but where is the location? Someone reading it, tell me. In the wilderness of Sinai, but where it was just more specific than that even after that. 
in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle. So between Leviticus and God's institution of the tabernacle, this is what you're supposed to do, Moses. You read in Exodus how, and these things kind of get jumbled, because in Exodus 19 through 20, you have the giving of the law. This came at that time when Moses was on Sinai for the 40 days, 40 nights. Okay, that's when God gave this. At the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is built, it's completed, and the glory of God fills it. So this is kind of all all mixed up in there. Leviticus is there only at Sinai, though. But there's a difference as we end Leviticus, Sinai, Sinai, and we come to Numbers. Presumably now, the tabernacle has been built. The sacrificial system has commenced. The priesthood has been ordained and put to work. Atonement is being made for the people for their sins. So whereas the message of Sinai was, don't come near or you'll die, the message that we move into now is, now you may come near through the blood of atonement. So we see a difference take place between Sinai, don't come closer, only Moses can come. Now we see the tabernacle is erected. Moses is in the tabernacle hearing from God and the people are welcomed in to his presence. So let's unpack the big picture. And it's a slightly bigger picture than normal because (laughs) it's not only this section, but really the entire book we're trying to summarize here. Here in Exodus, Leviticus, sorry, in Exodus, we see the heart of the gospel. And we see the heart of the gospel in that promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. That promise from Leviticus 26, the same promise God made in Exodus, the same promise he made in Genesis, walking with them, the same promise we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. I will be your God and you will be my people. If you remember one of the first sermons in the book of First Peter, Peter quotes from Hosea, and he's using that image where God cursed the people and said, I'm not your God, you're not my people. Peter says, in Christ, he is our God, and we are his people. He uses that same promise to talk about who we are in Christ, not just Israel at Sinai, but the people of God in the New Testament, the church of God. We are his people, and he is our God. This is what we were created for. We saw that with Adam and Eve. Walking, fellowshipping with God, worshiping God. That's why he made us. And it's important to note that this is God's motive throughout Leviticus. And really we could say the entire Bible. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about Leviticus, even Christians, I think, (laughs) talk about Leviticus as if it's, you know, some outdated, uh, crazy book of rules and regulations that no one would, you know, we don't, we don't get anything from reading Leviticus. There's nothing there for us. But there's so much there for us because from the very beginning, we see God's motive. What did he say in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3? When you bring the sacrifices, this is why I want you to bring them, so that you might be accepted by the Lord. From the very beginning, God is showing us his law. He's showing us his holiness. 
He's revealing these regulations not to put up boundaries to coming to him, but to show them how to come to him. This is not God putting up walls of separation so they've they got to stay away. No, he's showing them how they can come to him. Of course, he wants them to come without you know, dying because of being unclean, but he does show them the invitation is, I want you to come and I want you to be accepted. Any tension we feel when we read Leviticus or the law, the law and the punishments and the judgments, anytime we would be tempted to look at those things and, and feel tension or some uncomfortableness with this God who would dare judge sin, we need to remember that the tension is never because of God, but it's because man's sin is revolting to God. And notice, man is not revolting to God, but man's sin is revolting. Now, this is interesting because in these uh, four verses from chapter 26, that word I, I kept wanting you to look at, abhor, God would abhor their sin or abhor their uncleanness. The word is literally um, repulsed or revolted by. It would have been the same vocabulary used of someone who was sick to their stomach, who needed to throw up that kind of repulsion and disgusted, uh, disgust with the people and their sin. That's what that word means. Not just regular old hate. I mean, God hates sin. But it was actual repulsion. And God was revolted. He was made sick by this. It's interesting that in, in the book of Revelation, we see a similar picture, don't we? With the church of Laodicea. And how they were neither cold nor hot, but because they were lukewarm, God said, I'll spew you, throw you up out of my mouth. Uh, it's that same picture. The tensions we feel and we see with the law. And you could put this in modern vernacular. The tension that the secular world has with Christianity and a, and a holy God who we believe does say what's right and wrong and will judge heaven and hell and will punish wickedness and will reward holiness uh, this thing that makes the world so uncomfortable the tension they feel is a tension with the holiness of God now it's a tension they'll very quickly push off on us as if to say well that's your rules that's your religion that's your opinion take for instance the the recent I mean crazy uh, events the last two days with the Supreme Court and the, the potential that the ruling will be made in favor of the Mississippi law upholding the 15-week abortion ban, which would effectively mean that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, 24-week abortion uh, allowed with Roe v. Wade. I, you think about the, 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 the reaction you've seen from the world at this, and, and you see a direct assault on God's law. But it comes packaged very cleverly, doesn't it? And you see this a lot. Tell me if you've seen this argument. If you don't believe in abortion, fine. Don't have one. Have you seen that argument? I, you scratch your head for a minute and think, let's apply this to something else. You don't believe in murder? Fine. Don't commit murders. But don't tell me I can't commit murders. Now, that's what they're saying, isn't it? You don't believe in stealing? Fine. You don't steal. That's what your God, your religion says. But don't try to force your religion on me. I can steal when I want to. It, it, it just falls apart. 
because there is an innate part of God's law that is there. Do not murder. That's there at the base of the sin of abortion. And so the world feels that tension. Now, who do they take it out on? Are you people, you crazy Christians, or conservative Jews, Muslims, many people against abortion as we know it, not just Christians. But they say it's a religious thing, you keep your religion to yourself. What's the real tension they're feeling between a God who is holy and who will judge wickedness, such as abortion and murder, which is the same thing. They feel that tension with God and uh, take it out on, on different things. Um, the blessing of God, though, here is repeated in this promise that he will not abhor us. And that interesting sandwich there within all these warnings that I will abhor you, will abhor this. It's interesting that in chapter 26, verse 11, the first time we really see that word, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Or in verse 44 of chapter 26, Yet for that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them. So the blessing that we see, even in the midst of the warnings, is this repeated promise that God will not abhor his people or abandon them forever. Of course, when we know the gospel, we see this come to full light in Jesus because Christ took that which was abhorrent to God. You could even say this, Christ became that which was abhorrent to God. Can't we say that? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin. Or Galatians, God made him to be a curse for us so that God takes true delight in his people. Christ took what was abhorrent to God so that God can take true delight in us, his people. We've already pointed this out, but it, it's worth repeating. The punishments in Leviticus 26, all the punishments we see, are revealed as discipline. They're not revealed as curses or, the word I've chosen here, abandonment. Yeah. You hear the exasperation in verse 44 on behalf of God? I mean, you know what he's been talking about at the end of the chapter there is full-out exile. Israel, it's going to get to the point, you're going to be so far away from me that the only thing that's going to get your attention is all-out exile. And, of course, remember the minor prophets? It happens. Israel shipped off to Assyria. Judah shipped off to Babylon for 70 years. Israel, the northern kingdom, never fully recovers though God preserves you know, his remnant in Judah. Another lesson for another time. But in verse 44, he says, after the exile, yet for all that, even when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, I will not abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly. Why? Because of my covenant with them. God's blessings flow for his people because of his covenant with them. Has anybody ever heard the phrase in a, in a Bible study or otherwise? This microphone's giving me problems tonight. Has anybody ever heard the phrase in a Bible study or otherwise, uh, cut a covenant? Anybody heard that before? 
That would be the actual verb that's used when God makes a covenant. The word would be cut a covenant. Uh, not like you cut a deal with someone, but why do you think they would say cut a covenant? Blake, do you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to recap what you said because it was exactly right. You know, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, he does it by, uh, I can't remember, the, there's a litany of animals that are killed and they're cut in half. And they're not cut in half, you know, like this way, cut in half this way, whatever that is, cross section, that's not, whatever. They're cut in half long ways. And, and they're, they're spread out so as to make this nasty, gory path between these two halves of all these cut up animals. And what would typically happen in the covenant in those times is that the two people entering into this agreement together would walk through that nasty, bloody path together. What's being said? If you break your half of this covenant, <laughs> this is what's going to happen to you. Right? There's, there's a mutual agreement. This is what's going to happen to you if you break this treaty or this agreement. But in that, in that case with Abram, God doesn't call Abraham to walk through God appears in this weird jar and there's fire and, and God himself, by himself, passes through the, the, the bloody path. And what's God saying? I'm going to keep this covenant. And if anything's broken in this covenant, I'm going to take the punishment myself. Now, isn't that interesting when you, come to, when you come to see the Lord Jesus, God in human flesh, takes the payment that we owed for the breaking of that covenant that God made with himself. So all the blessings we see flow from God's covenant. God says, or Moses says, or I think it's Hebrews quoting from the Old Testament that says, you know, God, when he didn't have anything higher to swear by, swore by his own name. It's his covenant. It's his promise. That's where the blessings come from. So too, on the other hand, his discipline flows because of his covenant. The desire to bring his people back to himself into fellowship with himself is because of that covenant too. And really no matter if we're talking about the blessings or the curses or the discipline, however we want to refer to it, no matter which side we're talking about, they bring about the same result. A holy people who belong to God. Holy people who belong to God. The book of Hebrews tells us, sort of encapsulating all this for us as New Testament Christians, the book of Hebrews tells us that in Christ we have a better covenant. And we know it's a better covenant because the author says it's based on better promises. Not just a physical tract of land not just a physical earthly kingdom through a king, even a king as great as David, but we have a better covenant with better promises of an eternal land, an eternal city made without hands, Hebrews says, a greater priest, a greater king, a greater sacrifice, a greater temple, all of that wrapped up 
in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And that's where we're going to close tonight. Through the Leviticus, as we come through the entire scripture into the New Testament, we see that Jesus is our priest and our sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. His sacrifice is better than that of the animals because he alone is the sinless God-man. Blood of bulls and goats did their job for a while because they were pointing to the greater sacrifice, which was that of Jesus, a lamb without spot or blemish, God's own lamb. Jesus entered into the real holy place. Leviticus is all about the priests going into the holy place, right? The tabernacle. But Jesus enters into the real holy place, Hebrews says, nothing less than the very presence of God, to offer himself for us. So that the picture of those priests, whether it was just entering into the main part of the courtyard, or whether it was the daily entering into the holy place, or whether it was the yearly entering into the most holy place, whatever part of that picture you want to you know, focus on, Jesus, Hebrews says, enters by his own blood into the actual holy place. Remember, Hebrews says all that was just a shadow. It pointed to the reality which was in heaven. Jesus, through his death as our priest, as our sacrifice, enters into the most holy place, not on earth, but that which the thing on earth merely represented, the very presence and holiness of God. As such, Jesus' blood finally and eternally atones for and removes sin. Let's go back to that language of the ancient covenants and treaties. That which we would expect to see at the end of Leviticus. If you do this, you're blessed. If you do this, you're cursed. Jesus, the Bible says, endured the curse of God for us so that we might know the blessing of God. Remember earlier, I took it one step further, as did Paul in Galatians. He became the curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, in Christ, God's presence is not confined to Sinai, a tabernacle, or a temple. But his presence is within us by his spirit. We talked about this a lot last week with the, the Feast of Pentecost. And how Pentecost was this remembrance of the people coming to Sinai. And it was this celebration of when God gave them the law. When he appeared with clouds and fire on the mountain. He gave them the law on tablets of stone. He told them stay away. Remember, but at the day of Pentecost, what was up on the mountain, fire and clouds and smoke, and that all came down in the upper room. The Holy Spirit fills the disciples, 
rather than fire on the mountain, there was fire on the mountain. That's like, isn't it a bluegrass song? Fire on the mountain, run, boy, run. What was that? Charlie Daniels, Devil Went Down Georgia. That was distracting. And, and then instead of the fire on the mountain, we had the tongues of fire on the disciples, remember? And, and as opposed to the message of Sinai, which was stay away, stay far off, what was the message of Pentecost? The promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, that they may now come near through Christ. We have his presence in us by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. We are now called to live as God's holy people in gratitude for what he has done for us. In Leviticus, yes, and in ancient Israel, we had this national code, the cultural code, with the vows and the dedications and the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals. But you remember what the sacrifice is in the New Testament? Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sins, but now what do we offer him? Do we offer sacrifices and gratitude in terms of lambs and goats and, and, and merely tithes and giving our children to serve the church? No. What is the sacrifice of gratitude in the New Testament? Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Live your lives as living sacrifices to God, not in order to attain salvation, but because you have been made God's people through the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I hope, you know, if you didn't learn anything through Leviticus, you learned at least that the gospel is there. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you took away one thing uh, from all the stuff, and uh, I'll remind you of all the stuff Jared talked about and I talked about and maybe you thought would never end uh, with all the references to body parts and everything else, the gospel is intertwined all the way. And the message from the very beginning is a God who desires for his people to be with him. And that's the same message as, as the gospel. God drawing people to himself through his work in Christ. It's the same message that you see in Revelation. I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I will tabernacle in the midst of you. And on that day, it won't be a you know, traveling horde through the wilderness. It won't even be the church here that we know it on earth. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and God will be with his people, us who are in Christ. He'll be with us, and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, and uh, thank you for the beauty of your gospel, even as it's, it's wound throughout all these, uh, what we might consider bizarre um, otherworldly images in Leviticus, things that we just don't, we don't even think about, can't even consider anymore. Your gospel is there, and the beauty of Jesus is there on every single page. Help us, Lord, then to live for you, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you and, and gratitude, not repayment, but gratitude for what you've done for us. And then help us to live each day with an awareness of your Holy Spirit within us, your presence with us right now. We don't have to wait for the new Jerusalem for you to be our God and for us to be your people and for us to know your presence. We enjoy that now through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And uh, we ask that you would make that real to us as we study, as we continue to learn, as we continue to grow together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com.
hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.